Amen. I'm going to invite you to be seated and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to jump into verse 31 in just a moment. If you're not familiar with these two uh, passages of Scripture, Matthew 24 and 25 are Jesus' teaching his disciples about what will take place in the end times. In fact, these are two of the most important verses in the Bible if you want to understand what's going to happen in the future in the end times. And, and Jesus is describing what those days will be like. They've asked him in chapter 24 some questions, and, and in response he starts teaching. Some of it's direct teaching, some of it is parables where he's describing the conditions, some of it is prophecy where he's telling what's going to happen, but all of it is related to the end times. So let's look at what he says beginning in verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all of the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. So this is talking about the second coming of Christ. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Father, we pray that you would take the revelation of your word this morning and that you would transform it into a conviction in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, several years ago now, a book came out called The Hunger Games, which became immensely popular and, and was a huge seller. A year or two ago, that book was turned into a movie, which did quite well at the box office, and the sequel has been made and is going to be released someday soon. Now, if you're not familiar with The Hunger Games, the, the, the story of this book is set in a world of gross inequity. On the one hand, you have the people who live in the capital city, the citizens, the residents of the capital city. And these people live in luxury. These people live in excess. They pursue trivial matters and they are consumed with entertainment and pleasure and their own selfish needs and desires. On the other hand, you have everyone else. People who don't live in the capital city, they all live in the outlying districts. These people struggle to get by day to day. What consumes them is just the basic needs of life. They have no time for trivial matters because they are worried about survival. They're hungry. They do whatever they must to survive and to get by. This is the world created by author Susan Collins in The Hunger Games. And you know what? That world is not very different from our own. And don't get me wrong, I'm not making a political statement this morning. But the reality is that we live in a world of serious imbalance when it comes to wealth. Some people live in luxury. 
As some people indulge in gross excess, while others in our world struggle to get by day to day, barely surviving, and many of them dying of malnutrition. And there are various reasons for that. There, there are various reasons for the poverty that we see around the world. Sometimes it's political oppression. You get some dictator that comes in and, 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 and he's well off, he's well fed, but his people are starving because he controls the military and he controls the nation. Just look at North Korea. That's exactly what's going on there. That's the reason for their poverty. Sometimes it's because of a lack of education in a country or region of the world. A lack of education breeds poverty. Sometimes it's because societies have bought into bad philosophies, religious or political philosophies, that have crippled their productivity. They've bought into things like communism or something that has just crippled their ability to be effective in producing wealth. Sometimes it's because a drought has stricken a region of the world and they just can't grow anything there. There are a lot of reasons why it might be true that people are in poverty. But the question is this, what responsibility do we have given that reality as believers? What responsibility do we have? Not, not what responsibility does the government have. I'm not suggesting this morning, I'm not talking about the government taking our money and giving it to other people because there's all kinds of problems with that. What kind of responsibility do we as individuals have? How do we need to respond when we see people around the world, many of them children, who don't have their basic needs met? Listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. You ought to see the material wealth that you have in your life. If you have any level of luxury in your life at all, if you have any level of, of, of provision beyond what you really need, you ought to see that for what it is. It is a blessing from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, the Bible tells us. You enjoy material wealth. You ought to see it for what it is. It's a blessing of God. But listen, Jesus shows us in this passage that we have a responsibility to use that blessing that God has given us to help those who are in need. To whom much is given, much will be required. Yeah, but doesn't the Bible say that God helps those who help themselves? And, and, and well, I'm getting there. And... And aren't we just enabling people, poor people, if we just keep giving them money so they don't really have to work? Well, no, the Bible doesn't say that. Thank you for recognizing that. It does not say that. And we're not talking about enabling people. We're not talking about giving to people who can and should help themselves. There is some discernment to be used here. But in many places in the world, people are caught up in a system that doesn't allow them or enable them or empower them to help themselves. And so often it's the children who suffer the most. And so from the words of Jesus this morning, we're going to look at three reasons why you and I as believers must help those who are in need. Let me give you those three reasons. Number one, help those in need because it's the right thing to do. Help those who are in need because it is the right thing to do. We didn't read the whole passage, but if you continue on past where we stopped in verse 40, what you're going to see is this. After Jesus talks to those on his right, and he says, enter into the kingdom that my Father has prepared for you, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in need, you met my need. After he talks to that group, he turns to the group on his left. And he, say, and he condemns them to an eternity in hell, saying, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. 
And so when we look at this passage as a whole, when we, when we just get kind of a bird's eye view of it, the first and most obvi- obvious observation that we can make based on Jesus' response to these two groups is that helping others is just the right thing to do. Do you see that? I mean, that's just kind of the, the big picture. That's, that's the bird's eye view. Jesus is endorsing a one course of action. He's commending these people. You help those in need. And he is condemning another course of action. You turned a blind eye. Now, there's more that needs to be said about this passage. That, that observation alone doesn't really cover everything we need to say. But I want us to camp out here for just a moment before we move on. Helping those in need is the right thing to do. Why? Because when you meet the needs of others, when you help them in this way, you meet a need in their life, and that's what love is all about. Love is about meeting the needs of others. And what does Jesus tell us about the second most important commandment? He said the first most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's our first obligation. He said, but the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. It's really interesting. I never thought of this until this very moment. I'm going off script now, so this is a little dangerous, but here we go. Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in the Bible? You remember that? In that that little interchange when the the teacher of the law came, he said, what's the most important commandment in the Bible? That was the question he was asked. You know what he answered? The first and second most important commandments. He didn't stop with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He went on and volunteered the second part that we need to know. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. So as believers, we are compelled to love others. It is a core principle in in the Christian life, loving others. And that's not some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling, right? That's not a good intention. That's not putting a bumper sticker on your car that supports a cause. Love is practical. It's tangible. When we meet the needs of people, we love them. And that's why it's the right thing to do, because it is love in action. Look at what James says. This is the brother of Jesus in your notes, James chapter 2. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Good intentions aren't what love is all about. It's about meeting needs. So let's talk about the needs that exist in the world that we live in. I don't want to overwhelm you with a bunch of numbers and statistics. And I could have given you more. I, I, I kind of gave you a selection here, but I think it's important for us to get a scope of the need that exists in our world, to have an understanding of the need that is out there. And if you've traveled to other parts of the world, you may have a sense of this. If you haven't, you may not. Look at under poverty. Every day, 1,500 women die from complications in pregnancy or childbirth that could have been prevented. Each day, 10,000 newborns die within a month of birth, and daily, that same number of babies are also born dead. More than 1.6 billion people lack access to electricity and modern forms of energy. Over 1.4 billion people in the developing world, what we used to call the third world, live below the poverty line, which is $1.25 in U.S. dollars a day. Do you know how much this costs at the kangaroo station? $1.28. 1.4 billion people live on less than what this costs me to buy this morning every day. You know how many of these I drink in a week? 
a bunch. In developing countries, approximately 130 million children and teens, 17 and under, have lost one or both of their parents, which of course uh, makes the problem of poverty all that much worse. Hunger, more than 9 million children under the age of 5 die every year, and malnutrition accounts for more than one-third of those deaths. Most of these children live in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. When you expand it beyond the five and under range, just to children in general, more than six million children die from malnutrition every year. More than 140 million, or 25% of all children in developing countries are underweight and at risk from long-term effects of malnourishment. Nearly 15% of babies in developing countries are born with a low birth weight compared to only 7% of babies in industrialized nations. Worldwide, 161 million preschool children suffer from chronic malnutrition. Look at the child labor statistics. One in six children ages 5 to 14 years old is involved in child labor in developing countries. In the least developed countries, 30% of all children are engaged in child labor. Worldwide, 126 million children work in hazardous conditions, often during beatings, humiliation, and other things that you can read about there. An estimated 1.2 million children, both boys and girls, are trafficked each year into exploitive work in agriculture, mining, factories, armed conflict, and other things that you can read about there that we're not going to talk about this morning. In sub-Saharan Africa, 26% of children, 49 million of them, are involved in this kind of work. Hopefully these numbers will elicit a response from all of us this morning. But you know what? Numbers are just numbers. And sometimes it's hard to connect numbers to reality. And so this morning, I've asked Chad and Chrissy Loafing to come and to share a little bit of their experience of, of, of witnessing this kind of poverty in Africa. We're going to see a short video, and then they're going to share for just a few minutes. You live among the least of these, the weary and the be a tragedy for me to turn away all my needs you have supplied when I was dead you gave me life how good enough 
Thank you very much. Again, like Doug says, my name's Chad Loafing. This is my wife, Chrissy. And those images were taken from a family mission trip to Nairobi, Kenya, in a place called Kibera, which is one of the largest slums in the world. Um, the video and the images are quite disturbing at times, but also, too, is the description of what actually goes on there is very disturbing to hear. But it's, it's what's reality, it's what's truth. Um, the homes that you saw are shacks made of mud with metal roofs. Uh, the average home size is about an 8 by 10 room with up to 8 people living in each one. Um, they have no running water, no toilet toilets. Um, most of the residents are forced to go to the bathroom in plastic sacks or buckets because um, the public toilets actually have to pay to use them and they're very unsanitary. Um, after they get done going to the bathroom, they take those plastic sacks or buckets and throw them in the water that you saw there which becomes part of their natural habitat there. Um, the path that leads through the homes are very narrow. They're very compact, putting a lot of people in a small, very small place. You can actually, if you put your hands side to side, you can touch each side um, from the pathway that you walk through. Um, also, too, is as you walk down, there's a ditch oftentimes going down the middle that you see the water that's running down, and that's um, oftentimes very smelly. It carries the rainwater and wastewater away. Anytime there's large rain rains, it actually will flush whatever waste or whatever rainwater from the one part of the slums to the lower part of the slums. Um, the smell of Kibera is a mixture of um, burning charcoal that they use to cook with, but also, too, is the waste, um, human waste that you see there. Um, oftentimes, they do not eat for days. They die at young ages because of common illnesses or AIDS. Um, their families have to make the difficult decision of other paying for their children's education or food each day. Uh, these decisions are usually made by single moms. Oftentimes, the fathers have either passed away or have abandoned them. So even though the conditions in Kibera are very difficult to see, it is very eye-opening to see what's actually happening around the world today in places that we might not think about on a daily basis. Um, even though it is overwhelming, there is a great amount of joy in God in those part of the country, in that part of the country, and especially in Kibera. Um, Chris, we would like to kind of give you an example of a day in lives in one of the people that we know through their Kibera. Yeah, we were welcomed into um, many of the homes there, and um, I just want to tell you a little bit about two of the people um, that definitely touched our lives. Um, one was Grandma Beatrice, and she was raising her grandchildren because her daughter and um, her daughter's husband had already died, um, and she lived in a, a really small home. Um, so they had the difficult circumstances of raising children there. And then also, um, when the heavy rains come, the the, le the roofs would leak, and um, they would have to take shifts of sleeping um, because where the only mattress was would get wet each time. Um, and also, we were blessed with a sweet, sweet friendship with a girl named Knight. She's in her early 20s, um, and she's now raising her siblings and um, her cousins because their parents had died at a young age. Um, this responsibility fell to her because she's the oldest daughter in the family. She trusts God day by day to provide for their food um, and their basic needs, um, including um, now the school fees for, the, for her siblings and cousins. Um, she provides their meals by cooking over a, um, a small propane-like, um, camping-like burner. Um, she washes their clothes by hand and hangs them to dry. 
And in addition to these daily responsibilities, um, she's also pursuing her college education. Um, despite her challenging circumstances, she truly has a rich, rich faith in God, an indescribable joy and contentment in her, what she has. And we hope that this gives you a little better understanding of the challenges they face. Thank you. And that's what we want to do, give you a little bit of a up- better understanding of what those numbers look like. Some of you have been there. Some of you have seen it yourself. What you saw in some of those pictures were what many of our people have seen traveling to uh, other countries in South America, and that is people picking through trash piles, looking for scraps of food and other things that they can recycle. Now listen, we can talk about why people in certain parts of the world are poor and hungry and dying. We can talk about how to fix that and the changes that need to take place. And that's a conversation worth having. But when you look at these stats and you hear these stories and you see the impact that poverty has on people, isn't helping them just the right thing to do? Yeah, it's how we love. So why should you and I help those in need? It's the right thing to do. Second, help those in need because it is a demonstration of your faith. Help those in need, because it is a demonstration of your faith. Meaning, it gives evidence to the reality of who you are. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not suggesting that we gain eternal life by helping other people. That somehow we are saved by our works. How do I know that's not true? Well, at least two reasons. One, if we can gain eternal life by doing some good work, like helping those in need, then Jesus died for nothing. He died in our place in vain. We didn't need him to die in our place because we can earn life, eternal life, forgiveness of our sins by helping others. That old scale thing. Well, my, my good works are going to outweigh my bad works. not how it works. Jesus died because we needed a Savior. But I also know because the Bible just says it pretty explicitly. Look in your notes, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Or Titus 3, God our Savior showed us how good and kind He is. He saved us because of His mercy and not because of any good things that we have done. So the Bible is clear that we cannot earn our salvation. Don't misunderstand what this passage is saying. But here's the other thing. The Bible is clear that if you are genuinely saved, it's going to show up in some way in your life. There's going to be some evidence of the the, the work of God in you. The Bible calls it fruit. We can call it evidence. Call it whatever you want. There's going to be some evidence. Why? Because when God saves you, He doesn't just forgive your sins. He does do that. Praise God. But He doesn't just forgive your sins. He begins a work inside of you, a a transforming process. We are not who we were. The Bible says... That if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The Bible says He is changing us from one degree of glory to the next. And that comes out in the way we live our lives. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is recognizing in this passage. He's recognizing the evidence of faith in those who are true believers. So when you read this passage, your response should not be to go out and try to help somebody in need, hoping that it will gain you eternal life doesn't work that way. You only gain eternal life through faith in Christ. But if you have put your faith in Christ, then the question you need to ask yourself is this. Does my life demonstrate my faith? 
Do my actions point to the reality of who I really am in Christ? Because here's the reality. When we cooperate with the work of God's Spirit in us, our lives will reflect that. If you allow Him to work in your heart through the, the, the words that we are reading this morning from His Word, and you, you're convicted by that, and you respond to the work of God in you, it's going to be reflected in your life. You know, my kids are, are a lot like me in some ways. Sometimes that's good, sometimes not so good. But the reason that they are like me is because they're around me all the time. Right? So they pick up certain traits that I have. And certain mannerisms and, and viewpoints and attitudes, they, they, they pick those things up. So, so if you know me pretty well and you know my kids pretty well, you're going to go, ah, yeah, okay, I see some similarities here. Y'all are alike in these ways. Sometimes I'll be talking to CJ and I'll say something, he'll look at me and he'll say, oh, that's where Ryan gets it. <laughs> or sometimes he'll just say, okay, Ryan. Sometimes I'll be talking to Brad and he'll say something to me and I'll give him a look. He'll say, oh, that's a Haley look right there. <laughs> right? You see, because they're around me, because they're around Linda, they end up taking on the traits that we have. And that's, that's pretty much a subconscious thing. You know, They're not really thinking about it. It's just something that kind of leaks into their lives because they're around us. But there's something more. They also make some conscious choices that are consistent with the way that we do things as a family. Either it's certain rules that we have or traditions that we have or just common practices. But they, they make some conscious choices because that's the way they've been trained to live because they're just a part of our family and this is how our family operates. For example, I can give you a number of examples, but for example, there are certain things we watch on TV and certain things we don't watch. Certain kinds of movies we watch, certain kinds of movies we don't watch and our kids know that. Right? We don't just sit down and turn on the TV and just watch whatever's on there. We don't do that. That's not the way the Felton family operates. And if they have a question about it, I don't know, is this, is this you know, okay, not okay, then they ask us. They know that because they're a part of our family. And what a great picture that is of us. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have His Spirit within us. And because His Spirit is within us, there's some certain uh, uh, godly traits, godly things that are going to begin to show up in our lives. For example, when God saved you, He put a new set of desires in your heart. Desires for the things of God. Now, listen, if, if you're anything like everyone else, those old desires, those old sinful desires are not necessarily gone, right? And that's what causes the tension in the Christian life. But God has put a new set of desires in your heart. It's not so much a conscious thing that you're doing as something that God is just doing in you. At the same time, though, there are conscious choices that you make because you are a part of God's family and you know how God's family operates. And you make those choices because you know consciously you are a part of His family. And when you see people making certain choices, you say to yourself, ah, that person must be a Christian. Or I wonder if he's a believer because I'm looking at the choices he's making in his life. I don't know if I've already told you this. I, I've told it somewhere and I can't remember where. So if, it's, if I'm repeating myself, forgive me. But recently when Haley was in the hospital, I was down at the cafeteria at Shands. And I'm standing in line and I'm, I'm waiting to get some food. And there are two guys in front of me in line. And after observing them for just a moment, I said to myself, these guys must be believers. They must be Christians. Now, they didn't do anything overtly to identify themselves as Christians. They didn't, they didn't refer to Jesus. They didn't say hallelujah or praise God. They didn't speak in King James English, you know, thee and thou. I mean, they, they didn't do anything that would overtly identify them as believers. But there was something about them. I'm looking at them and there's some intangible quality. 
And I'm saying to them, the way they're reacting to interacting with one another, the way they're interacting with the, the, the servers, and I'm saying to myself, I'm just looking at them, I'm going, these guys are believers. It just kind of oozed out of them. I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just knew it. So I watched them. And when they went and sat down and, and they began to eat, before they ate, they bowed their heads and they thanked God for their food. And you see what's going on there? There's a couple of things. One, there was just an intangible quality in their life that made me see them and think of Jesus. These people are like Jesus in some way. All right? It's that, 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 that subconscious thing. You weren't doing anything conscious, just who they were. But when they sat down to eat, they made a conscious decision. We are part of God's family, and as such, we're going to thank Him for the blessing of this food. Make the choice to help those in need. Listen, God has put in your heart, if you're a believer, a, a new kind of desire to love people the way He loves people. That's something He's put in you. Now make a conscious choice to help those in need because it is what we do in the family of God. It is a demonstration of your faith. Finally, help those in need because it pleases Jesus. Help those in need because it pleases Jesus. Bible scholars debate exactly who Jesus is talking about here when he refers to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Who are the brothers and sisters? And, and remember the context here. This is after that seven years of tribulation, which is going to be a time of, 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 of persecution and uh, a time of, of great distress in the world. And, and so some people think it's talking about believers who are kind towards Jews who are going to suffer great persecution during this time. And, and, and as a result, they're going to be involved in poverty and have a lot of needs. So it's, he's talking to believers about how they treated Jews. Some people think he's talking about believers who are well off and how they treated uh, other believers who were not well off during this time of persecution and tribulation. Some people think he's talking about how believers treated missionaries who went out and spread the, the word of God during this time of tribulation and suffered be, because, of, because of such intense persecution going on. Here's what I think. I think we can get caught up in trying to identify specifically who Jesus is talking about here and overlook the general description that he gives of them. These are people who are needy. These are people who have needs in their life that need to be met. And Jesus is pleased when we help them. And of course, listen, you can look throughout the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, you can find passage after passage after passage where God tells us that if we are His people, if we are His followers, that we will help those in need, those who are most vulnerable, those who cannot help themselves. Look at James chapter 1, verse 27 in your notes. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice that there is both a social and a moral component to true religion, to godliness. We talk a lot about the moral component. We scream and yell about the moral component, but sometimes we don't talk enough about the social component. It is a part of God's nature to have compassion on those who are vulnerable and those who are needy. And so it should not surprise us that Jesus is pleased when we help those in need. In essence, what he's saying here is, listen, I want you to treat them the way you would treat me. I want you, when you're meeting their needs, I want you to treat them as though you were meeting my needs. Why should we help those in need? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it is a demonstration of your faith. And because it pleases Jesus. Okay, now what? Alright, we've heard it, right? We've heard what God says. We're going to internalize it because we're followers of Christ. 
We're going to hear what he says and we're going to, we're going to put it into action in our life. We want to demonstrate the reality of our faith by doing what we're told. So what do we do now? Well, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Go home and look at your finances and find out where you can give up some luxury you enjoy to help someone who has nothing. What is do you have in your life that you don't really need? All right? And we all know that there's a difference between wants and needs. And we can get emotionally attached to things that we don't really need. But what do you have in your life that you don't really need, that you can do without to help someone in need? What can you forego in the name of love? Now, we need to take another step. We need to figure out how to, how to, to get that money to people that will, in a way that will really help them, in a way that makes sense. And we'll talk about that step next week. But right now, I'm calling you to make a commitment to create space in your budget for the least of these. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus. And we know, Father, we know we live in a blessed society. Father, we have been the most blessed nation on earth over the last several hundred years. The amount of wealth that's been generated in this nation due to ingenuity and hard work and a free market system has been overwhelming. And Father, we have been the recipients of that. We have been blessed by that. But Father, we know there are many people around the world, for whatever reason, many of them children, that have no say in their circumstances, that just don't have enough to survive or to survive well. Father, we pray that you would give us the compassion that you have for those who are needy. And Lord, that you would help us to think seriously about the things that we can really do without, the things that we really don't need, so that we can help somebody who has nothing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.